Before we start, this season finale episode shoutout goes to the Virginia Museum of Transportation. From cars to trains and boats to airplanes, the museum shows Virginia's evolution in the means of travel through their many exhibits, artifacts, and more. They have locomotives with rolling stock, a room full of cars from different eras, and several interactive exhibits in every part of the museum, including a model train set made by local model railroaders. The museum hosts many events yearly and invites people to become a member or volunteer at the museum. Visit them on their social media website, www.vmt.org, or stop by their location, located off of Norfolk Avenue in downtown Roanoke. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Ben, in another episode on History in the Valley. I hope that you all have enjoyed a wonderful 4th of July weekend and enjoying summer so far, whether that's hitting the pools or the beaches. As I have said in the previous recording, I have been delayed with vacation and clearly delayed now. But I'm ending this season with a special two-part episode to a mini-part series that had started earlier this year. Stick around afterwards for a special announcement and closing. Without further ado, on to the final episode, episode 7 of season 3. Enjoy. Where we left off from part 1, we had discussed about the first means of travel through southwest Virginia that had started with the Native Americans and their Great Indian War Path that soon became known as the Great Wagon Road as the first settlers rolled into the heart of southwest Virginia starting in the early 1700s. To recap, the Great Wagon Road ran through the Shenandoah Valley down to Big Lick, or present-day Roanoke, the center hub of trade routes in western Virginia. Here, two primary routes split off from this settlement. The Carolina Road, that ran southward into the Carolinas and further to Georgia, and the Wilderness Road, which was the most traveled. It ran between Big Lick and Bristol. With that out of the way, let's start with where we left off at. Following the end of the French and Indian War in 1763, the Wilderness Road saw even more travelers of various sorts, immigrants, settlers, and frontiersmen, crossing the region as there were less Indian raids, enough favorable land to settle in, and even the ability to reestablish abandoned communities. Still, many suffered from harsh weather conditions, wildlife threats, and difficult crossings at rivers or steep pathways. No real improvements had been made on the road for the last 20 to 30 years, with the exception of a few things such as Ingalls Ferry in Radford or some selected sections of the road widened. Starting in the 1770s and throughout the American Revolution, many sought out more routes and demands for improvement as the westernmost frontier was going into the Ohio Valley. One new route that was established to reach modern-day Kentucky and the Ohio Valley was the Daniel Boone Wilderness Trail. Quoted from the Wilderness Road website, 
Richard Henderson, a claimant to large holding in the West, along with the Transylvanian Company, commissioned Boone to quickly open a path to trace over the Cumberland Gap in 1775. Named after the frontiersman himself, who traversed the frontier before 1770, the trail spurred from the Wilderness Road at Bristol and went west to the Cumberland Gap and Martin Station before carrying travelers beyond northwest into modern-day Kentucky. Additional improvements included some reroading and more widening as more wagons and later on carriages were being used throughout the region. During the American Revolution, the Wilderness Road was vital for American troops who were marching to the Southern Theater and later on marching British prisoners of war to Winchester near the end of the war. Various sources, such as Beargrass Thunder Blog, stated that as many as 300,000 settlers traveled on both the Wilderness Road and the Daniel Boone Trail between 1775 and 1810, while others believed that more than that tracked across the valleys. As the young nation entered into a new era, a brand new revolution began, industrialization. Large industries and factories slowly dominated the northern half of the country, while the southern states, which included Virginia, remained primarily agricultural, but with improved technology and methods that sped up the harvesting and production of crops, such as Eli Whitney's cotton gin, in 1794, or fellow Virginian Cyrus McCormick's Mechanical Reaper in 1831. Around the time that the War of 1812 had ended, new technological innovations came into the foreground for not only agriculture, but also for the means of transportation, road turnpikes, and river canals. Turnpikes were nothing new. In fact, they are considered to be upgrades or successors to the existing paths and trails, and the predecessors to routes like Lee Highway or I-81. See, starting in the 1810s, the use of frontier trails and paths for travel rapidly declined as people were traversing areas where it was only accessible and wide enough to carry a family wagon or train most of that distance being off the trails itself. Problems in the past with, say, the Wilderness Road was that it was difficult when crossing a ridge, forging a river, or cutting through a very densely forested area, and therefore those with wagons had to stop and or traverse by foot for great lengths at a time. And as commerce increased in the 1830s, the Virginia General Assembly acknowledged that something had to change or be adjusted. In 1834, the General Assembly established the creation of the Fincastle and Blue Ridge Turnpike Company in order to establish a newer and better route that could connect Fincastle to the Cumberland Gap. Known today as the Fincastle Turnpike, the road ran roughly 248 miles from Fincastle to Cumberland Gap through Botetot, Craig, Giles, Bland, Taswell, and Russell counties, located between the Allegheny Mountains 
and Fort Lewis Mountain. Geographically, the turnpike runs along the back western side of Fort Lewis Mountain, whereas the Roanoke and New River Valleys were located along the front eastern side of the Fort Lewis Mountain chain. This alternate route detoured roughly two-thirds of the wilderness route and took until 1841 to be complete. According to the Scott County Tourism site website, quote, the turnpike was 18 feet wide of good carriageway, not to exceed 5% with soft sections, turnpiked by raising the center line 18 inches above the horizontal line. Toll gates were set up every 15 miles with each county responsible for collecting tolls and using the funds to maintain the road within their borders. The idea was to promote commerce and bind the western counties with the rest of the states." This concept, however, was quick to fade away, as several counties didn't want to service or maintain the road, with only too few counties willing to continue aiding. Shortly after the completion, the Virginia General Assembly gave up on the turnpike and turned their attention to the aging frontier wilderness road and refurbishing it into the southwest turnpike between Salem and Bristol. Another existing toll road at that time was the Lynchburg and Salem Turnpike. Its company was commissioned in 1818, reaching Liberty in 1828 and finally Salem in 1836, complete with five toll gates. Another turnpike, which was infamous in, during the 19th century, was the Richmond-Lynchburg Stage Road, in which connected the capital to southwest Virginia, and was vital in later years, especially during the American Civil War. Canals were also nothing new, as the earliest first canal in Virginia dated back to 1728, when William Byrd II, founder of the city of Richmond, acknowledged the need for a commercial waterway between Currituck Sound, North Carolina, and the Chesapeake Bay. However, its usage was expanded. Aside from shipping goods and materials upriver to Richmond, canals soon took the place of the wagons and its poor roads as the leading mode of transportation in western Virginia for a time. Traversing the difficult roads while carrying a limited number of goods would take nearly a month or more to reach the Ohio Valley, whereas movement via river canals could cut the travel time down to weeks and carry double, maybe triple, the cargo and passenger capacity. In the following decades up to the early 1800s, more canals were chartered in eastern Virginia as, quote, large investments in canals far larger than mill races were made on many rivers in Virginia. Most of the money was focused on creating canals for transportation, end quote. Such figures, including George Washington, was an early advocator and large supporter to transportation developments as he sought to further survey and expand the country westward. In 1785, the James River Company was chartered, and the James River and Kanawha Canal was opened five years later, 
becoming one of the two most significant canal systems in the Commonwealth. The other company being the Potomac Canal, which ran from the Chesapeake Bay through the District of Columbia and beyond into Maryland. The James River Canal eventually reached southwest Virginia at Lynchburg in 1840 and further west to Buchanan in 1851. Unfortunately, the proposed extension beyond into western Virginia never happened due to the lacking funds and the growing lack of federal support in the following years. Even so, turnpikes and river canals continued to serve the region in transportation going into the mid-1800s, but both were met with defeat at the hands of a new contender for transportation dominance, railroads. A creation that dates back to concept drawings in the 1690s, a steam-driven engine could produce a power output far greater than that of water wheels or manpower. This device kick-started the Industrial Revolution primarily for factories, but ideas for movable power grew. England developed the first official steam locomotive in 1802 and 10 years later became commercially successful with its first commissioned railway. Many people in the early days had questioned the legitimacy of rail transportation, but was quarreled as locomotives proved their worth in gold. This indefinitely made transportation quicker and even more cost-efficient. A ride via carriages or a ride on a canal boat would take several weeks, whereas a freight train or passenger line could reach its destination in less than a week, depending on the traveling distance. Eventually, the steam train came to the United States in the 1820s, and in just a few years, the first passenger and freight railway, the Baltimore and Ohio, was completed in 1827. And just like that, the railroad industry was born. The following two to three decades saw miles and miles of railroad tracks laid down across the Commonwealth, as small railroad companies dotted northern, eastern, and central Virginia. Some of these lines would follow alongside canal roads, while others would take over the individual canal companies completely. Between 1827 and 1860, a total of 11 major railroads would reside within the Commonwealth's borders, each claiming its own region or area. One of these railroads runs through the Great Valley region in southwest Virginia. It wasn't until the start of 1850 when the region, or rather southwest Virginia, witnessed the first steam locomotive to run through the valley, led by the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad Company. It was an ambiguous state project, as stated in an online article from Emerging Civil War. Quote, it took drama, political wrangling, sectionalism, fear of abolition, foretold succession, years of discussion, and a lot of money before the first ties, rails, and spike went into place on January 16, 1850, in Lynchburg, Virginia, two years after the original railroad charter had been passed. End quote. 
It took the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad nearly seven years to reach Bristol, Tennessee, the railroad's ultimate goal. Having laid down between 175 to 213 miles of tracks, building five tunnels, 233 bridges, and selecting 19 towns for train depot locations. After its completion, it connected central Virginia with the rest of the south, making it the most vital rail line for agriculture, commerce, and of course travel. It is agreed among many historians and sources that the arrival of the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad had started a modernization era for southwest Virginia, as it changed the lives of many who for the longest time were isolated, were now connected both politically and socially with their eastern Virginian brethren. See, prior to the locomotives, the region was seen as primitive by the rest of the Commonwealth with its slow growth, social concealment, and limited crop and resource trade. Now with the railroad starting in 1850, Agriculture could be shipped faster and relatively more accessible to northern and eastern markets, while the rails drew in more people, not necessarily settlers, but tourists. Thanks to the discovery of natural hot springs and other landmarks, they quickly turned into popular vacation resorts, with the help of whistle stops being built along the line near these locations. Passenger travel to such places was far more inexpensive and, of course, faster, cutting weeks into days, again depending on the travel distance. This was the first and earliest type of commercial tourism, a brand new source of income that would continue to this day in the valleys. Trains created commercialization of crop production and mineral mining operations. Rather than these goods being secluded to support just families, the commercialization of agricultural now meant that produce could be more accessible to northern and eastern markets, shipping out relatively faster than by wagon. New industries, too, sprung up throughout the valley, such as coal and timber alongside existing operations like the Saltville Mines and Whitfield County's lead mines. Some new businesses or occupations that came into the valleys included various craftsmen, educators, store owners, and bankers. Sadly, like in all aspects of American history, the coming of the Virginia-Tennessee Railroad had negative impacts in society. Some included minor to major depopulation of backcountry towns that were not along the rail lines while other issues included funding for continual railway services. Yet the primary consequence to which led into the American Civil War was slavery. The Virginia and Tennessee Railroad, aside from transporting agriculture and livestock, also transported enslaved people, and it was the main line that reached the deep south from the Commonwealth East Coast. Prior to the existence of the railroad, the institution of slavery in the valley was extremely small as the first census record counted 1,787, or 6% of southwest Virginia's population, to be slaves.
Yet by the 1830s and 40s, the numbers grew to 12,060, or 12.3% of the population of enslaved Negroes. When the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad arrived into southwest Virginia in the following decade, slave holdings were driven up to 16,442, or 10.6%, a smaller percentage only because of the greater growth in white population that surpassed that of the enslaved. Much had to do with the growing demand of slaves and increasing numbers of mountain plantations and farms thanks to commercialization. But the other major player was that much slave labor was needed and used to build a majority of the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad itself, either with laying down track, hauling heavy materials, or cutting away at mountainsides for tunnels and grades. Many African Americans suffered horrible conditions. Some died while others became permanently disabled by major injuries. One of several examples included the Shawsville Tunnel, a pre-Civil War tunnel dug out solely without dynamite by hundreds of slaves plus a dozen or more prisoners. And as far as political tensions go, pretty much of that is due to the expansion of slavery both here and in the South, along with the increasing number of slaveholdings and demands in Southwest Virginia. As a result, Political views in the region changed from being against secession into pro-secession from the Union, again thanks to the ever-growing numbers of enslaved. When the American Civil War broke out after the attack on Fort Sumter and at the Battle of Manassas, the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad was the primary target of Union forces in Western Virginia, later known as West Virginia in 1863. As the railroad was the blood vessel of the Confederacy, connecting between the eastern and southern theaters of the war, carrying war supplies and soldiers, as said in previous Civil War era episodes. As a result, the railroad was assaulted numerous times by Union raiders, and it delayed travel and transportation for many. In later years, in desperation of supplying two separate armies in two separate states, passenger service was halted by the order of the Confederate government, forcing many people to travel via carriages on former toll roads. When the war was in its closing days, the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad was ultimately destroyed during General Stoneman's April raid that occurred days before Robert E. Lee's surrender. Following the war and throughout the Reconstruction era, the railroad slowly repaired itself, and eventually, after a while, freight and passenger services resumed, continuing its services throughout the rest of the century. From the end of the American Revolution to the close of the 19th century, three different types of transportation arose as frontier trails and paths faded away toll roads and turnpikes, the successors to the Wilderness Road, allowed larger vehicles to traverse the Commonwealth and with smoother ride. The canal system allowed the ability to transport goods and people from southwest Virginia to eastern Virginia 
for the first time via the James River traveling down to Richmond. Both of these first two, however, had a short lifespan as they only lasted roughly 12 to 40 years, being surpassed by the rising railroad industry that had brought both prosperity and devastation into southwest Virginia in the 1850s and 60s. What lies ahead will be a new era and a new means of transportation that will revolutionize travel and contend with the steam locomotive in the 20th century. This episode was put together with research from many sources and references, including Wilderness Road, Virginia, Scott County Tourism, Canals of Virginia, virginiaplaces.org, the Historical Marker Database, Voices from Eastern Montgomery County, Virginia, written by Don and Fran Poole, bridgehunter.com, the Virginia Tech Online Image Database, Emerging Civil War Online, the History Channel, Beargrass Thunder Blog, Virginia History Series, ThoughtCo.com, Southwest Virginia's Railroad, written by Kenneth Knoll, and finally, the Historical Society of Western Virginia. Please support them by visiting their site or social media page to learn more about 19th century transportation and more. Thank you for listening to another episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. This podcast is always improving with every new episode. All I ask that you invite family and friends to listen and send me any questions or feedback via my email in historyone at gmail.com. History in the Valley is also available on Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Public, and Pocket Cast. Just save it and enable notifications just like Spotify. And if you haven't caught up with the previous episodes, please do so. Again, thank you listeners for bearing patience, and there will be a final part three in the next season. Which, by the way, season four will air its first episode on October 17th. I'm Ben Jenkins, and until the next episode, where there's history, there's a story to be told. See you in October 2019.